This morning, if you would go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Acts, we're finishing up a series this morning uh, that we've been in on the Holy Spirit called Advantage. You know, Jesus said that He was going to send His Spirit uh, and the Holy Spirit would come in power and it would be to our advantage, that it would be to the disciples' advantage, which is a pretty big deal uh, when the person that Simon had, Simon Peter, had called the Son of the Living God, and Jesus says, you're absolutely right, I am the Son of the Living God. When He says He's going away, when He's going somewhere else, but it's actually to your advantage that He goes away, our interest should peak. And He said that in regards to the Holy Spirit, that it was going to make such an impact when the Spirit of God came in new covenant power uh, that it would change the course of life for the church, for believers, forever. So we've been looking at that over the last several weeks. Last week talking about spiritual gifts. If you um, have missed a week or something like that and want to catch up, that's always available online. So this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 as we close out this series. And uh, before we uh, get into that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord again in prayer and ask for Him to reveal things to us in His Word as only He can do. Father, uh, we thank You for the Word of God. It is a lamp unto our feet. And Father, we pray that You would guide us in Your Word this morning, that Your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it and to apply it. Lord, we confess we need You this morning. If I stand and I teach and I preach, and if we listen and we do our best, Lord, at the end of the day, it's all in vain if Your Spirit doesn't show up and do mighty things. If, you're, if You don't reveal things to us, if You do not teach us, if You do not help us to apply and live out Your truth, then Lord, we, we do it in our own strength and we fail. So Lord, we confess our need to You this morning and we pray that for the honor and the glory and the fame of Jesus and for His purposes that You would have Your will done here. Amen. Alright, if you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 2, um, as we're closing out this series, what does the Holy Spirit desire to do in the church today? What does He desire to do in North Park? And if this is your church home, what does He desire to do here? What does He want to do? You ever wonder that? What's God up to? What does God desire for the church? What's this church supposed to be? What's a church supposed to do? We do things. Are we doing the things we're supposed to be doing? We are things. Are we the thing or that we're supposed to be? Are we who we're supposed to be? You know, you can look around our city and you can see a myriad of denominations church styles, right? So you've got all kinds of denominations, non-denominations, denominations, Baptist, Methodist, uh, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, um, Presbyterian, Lutheran, you name it, right? And we can just go on down the list. And then there's all kinds of styles. There's more traditional styles and more formal styles and less formal styles and less traditional styles. And there's more modern styles and, I mean, styles that don't want to be called styles and styles that change so fast that we can't keep up with them, right? I mean, it's just, we sit in rows, we sit in circles, we, I mean, we, we there's all kinds kinds of things going on if you look around our city, our state, our nation, around the world. Just different denominations, different styles, different ways of doing this thing we call church. So let's peel back the onion a little bit today. Let's get it down to the core and let's see what is it that the Holy Spirit really desires to do in His church. It's the Holy Spirit who knits the church together. We read earlier that Jesus will build His church. And then He has sent His Holy Spirit to see, for, see through the mission of calling people to faith in Christ, revealing the people who Jesus is, calling us together in, as, a, as, as a body and individual expressions of that all over our city and all over our world. What does the Holy Spirit desire to do with Jesus' church? 
Today I want us to journey back to the first century and get a look at the early church directly after what we call Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came in new covenant power and the church would never be the same. I mean, you've got Peter goes from being cowardly, denying Jesus three times, to boldly standing up and preaching and thousands being saved, dies a martyr's death, history tells us. I mean, just radically changed after that. And yes, they two things had happened. They had seen the resurrected Christ and the Spirit had come in new covenant power. And Jesus had told the disciples, you wait for me, you wait in Jerusalem, and the Spirit's going to come. You wait there, He's going to come, and then you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so they waited. And then in Acts 2, verses 1-11, through 11, records what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in great power. That's when all the speaking in tongues and everybody's hearing the gospel in their own language and all these different people from different languages are together and they're hearing their gospel in their own language and they're believing and they're being saved. This great, incredible, supernatural work of God happens. Then Peter sees an opportunity and he stands up and he preaches and he's full of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God moves. Many people are saved. And what flowed from there was a Spirit-empowered church. A Spirit-empowered community of believers. A people that were completely yielded to the Holy Spirit. I want to pick up this morning at the end of Peter's sermon. And then read the verses following. So we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 36. And we're going to read through verse 47. Let all the house of Israel therefore, this is Peter preaching, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now remember, he's preaching to a predominantly Jewish group. Verse 37, and a lot of their leaders, leaders were there that would have helped and led in the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's me and you. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His Word, right? They believed. Believed what? His Word. That Jesus was the Messiah. That He was the Christ that had been crucified and had been risen. Those who received His words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Like that. One sermon, right? 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Verses 42-47 there is one of my favorite passages in Acts and one of the more famous passages of the early church that we have. It gets quoted often, it gets used often, it gets preached a lot. Because it is the earliest description we have of the first church. 
right after Pentecost. In kind of its purest, most innocent form, right? Everything's new. They're just discovering what, what does it even mean to be... They even even had a business meeting yet, folks. I mean, they are just discovering, right? They, there's no letters of incorporation. There's not, you know, they don't... Who's, the, you know... what? They don't really know what's going on. They're just, they're just being, right? And it's just this earliest form after the Spirit has come and we see it's on this tail end of, of Pentecost. And what you see there in verse 42 is the new believers that have just been saved, that is most likely them in verse 42 that they are becoming devoted. You see those, those four things, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And then in verses 43 onward, you've got kind of a description of what it was like to be in this community of these people devoted to these things, what the characteristics were like, what, what life was like in the early church. Now, it wasn't a perfect church. We're not going to have, you don't have to go over very far, just a few chapters, and God kills a couple of people for lying to the Holy Spirit and being hypocritical in their giving. You say, wow, in the world would God take that so seriously? I mean, people lie all the time and they're not dropping dead now. Only when you understand what's happening here can you understand why God does that there. This is the church in its purest, most innocent form. There's a sense of awe. There's a sense of God is here and God is at work. And there's this new thing that's happening. And God needs to show us very early how seriously He deals with sin and how seriously He takes sin among His people. But... It's just an incredible, magical picture we have here of what church was like and what it can be like. Kind of what the dream is, what the ideal is, what we constantly have to call ourselves back to and strive for in these passages. You know, some things you read in Acts or in certain historical, it's a historical book, certain historical books, narratives and things like that are what we call prescriptive and some are descriptive. What I mean by that, prescriptive is do this, right? You read Ephesians, there's a lot of prescriptives in there, right? You need to, to do this. You read Acts, there's some things that are descriptive. This is what happened. Do I need to do this? Well, I don't know. I mean, you read you read the New Testament and Judas went out and hanged himself. You don't need to go hang yourself. That's descriptive. There's no command there, right? And so there's descriptive things in the Bible. There's prescriptive things in the Bible. There's things you need to do and there's things you need to observe and you might need to do. And then there's principles we need to apply. And in this passage, it's a descriptive passage, but it has some things that elsewhere in Scripture it is prescribed. And it's so there's principles here at work in this passage. And I want to walk, all I want to do is walk you through five things out of this passage that I believe describe the church, that I believe describe what the Holy Spirit desires in every church, no matter the denomination, no matter the style. This is what the Holy Spirit's at work trying to do. This is not supposed to be abnormal. This is supposed to be the norm. No church is perfect, right? As this church wasn't either. But these are the things we need to fight for. These are the things we need to wrestle for. These are the things we need to pray for. And, and, and honestly, revival and renewal and revitalization in the local church means that rediscovering these five things in newer and better and continual ways. So what are the five characteristics we see that the Spirit brought out in, in this church? Well, the, and everybody's got different lists when they look at this passage. Here's, here's five. Number one, they were gospel-believing. Gospel-believing. The gospel is the found Jesus 
the news about Him. That, that's the foundation, right? Jesus is the foundation of which we're built upon. And the Gospel is the good news of Jesus. And you don't have to look very far to, to see the impact the Gospel had on these people. In fact, the church was birthed out of the preaching of the Gospel. Peter stands up and preaches the good news about Jesus and people get saved and a, and a church is born. And so the first thing about believing the Gospel is understanding that the Gospel is what brings us in. To relationship with God. Verse 41 says those who received His Word were baptized. Right? They, they, they heard the Gospel about Jesus that He was preaching, that He was crucified and risen from the dead, and they received His Word. They believed. They believed the Gospel, and then they were baptized. See, the true church, all across this world, the true church is, is saved people. <laughs> I know that sounds... Uh, he's, well, how do we know who's saved? And I say, well, we don't really. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart. But the true church really is saved people. It's believers. And so the local church should strive for saved membership. In other words, to be a member and be an active, on-the-roll member of a local church, you're supposed to be a believer. And if you're not a believer, you shouldn't be on there. If we've got very good reason to believe you're not a believer, you shouldn't be on there. It's for, it's for believers because it's a saved membership. And that's what this early church had. They believed and they were baptized. These were believers. But we, every church has unsaved members, I believe. That's just the nature of sin in our world. Many of you, like myself, can say you came to faith in Christ after you were already a member of a church. People who've gone through the motions and never experienced the reality of, ah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, and it changes the course of your life forever. Right? We either believe the gospel or we just kind of have a lifeless religion. The gospel's good news. This is what has been done. Religion is a good try. This is what I must do. Right? And so the gospel tells us this is news. This is announcement. Something's been done. Christ has died. Christ has risen. That's all that needs to happen for me. I don't have to do things to please God to get my way into heaven. Christ has done all that needs to be done for me to go to heaven. And I rest. I rely. I believe in Christ. He saves me. Right? And now I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. I'm living in light of the fact that that's where I'm headed. I'm not earning my destiny. I'm living in light of my destiny. I'm not earning, you know, right standing with God. I'm living differently because I have a right standing with God. That's the difference. And so we want every member here, obviously, to, to know Jesus. But not only do they, they know Jesus, but they, they were also baptized. It says that immediately they were baptized. baptized. Baptism has always been the outward expression of the inward reality of conversion. It's an outward picture of an inward change. The baptism didn't save these people. They received the Word and then they were baptized in that order. And that's the order, right? And so you believe the Gospel and then you, and you get baptized. And Maybe today you're someone that's believed the Gospel, but you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized in the right order. Maybe you got baptized as a child, you believed the Gospel and really got saved later. And you've never been baptized in the order that they were baptized in. And you need to be actually re-baptized, or what we would call baptized. Maybe you're here today and you, maybe you were, you, were, you were sprinkled as a child, but you've never been immersed. You're like, why do I need to be immersed? Well, because as we understand it, uh, to not get too deep into it here, but as we understand it, that is the way they did it in the New Testament, and it's the best picture of what it means to be buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Right? And so that's why we immerse. And so maybe you need to be immersed. Maybe you were sprinkled as a baby because your parents hoped and prayed that you would grow up to be a Christian. And maybe you need to declare through baptism, hey, I'm a Christian, right? You know, the Spirit of God shows up 
at Pentecost and 3,000 people, it says, souls are added. But don't miss this. 3,000 people just didn't get saved. They got baptized. And could it be that there's a, a work of the Spirit of God in some of us this morning or in some of you this morning that is being resisted and being quenched because you refuse to be baptized? Could you be resisting what the Holy Spirit wants you to do? The first act of obedience? We're gospel-believing people. That means we should be baptized. But not only that, the gospel doesn't just bring us in. The gospel is what unites us. Verse 44, all who believed were together. All who believed were together. It was all who believed that came together. It was that, that's what united the church. The message of Peter and the apostles was very simple one about Jesus being the Messiah. And it's that same message that unites us today. It wasn't all the people that wore the same clothes or had the same income or liked the same music or had the same ethnicity, ethnicity that united the early church. It was those who believed. All who believed, verse 44, were together. Many things can divide us. But the gospel always unites us. At the core, the church is a group of people united together by the Spirit through belief in the gospel of Jesus. You know, the church would be tested on this if the gospel would be the core of what would unite us or whether they would stick to other things, whether they would let other things come into this. The first test was with Saul. You get over to Acts chapter 8 and 9 and in that section you've got the biggest enemy of the church that's persecuting them and dragging people off to be prison, to be in prison, and then all of a sudden he shows up at a church meeting one day and saying, Hey, I know I've been having you locked in jail. I know I've held jackets while some of you have been stoned. I know I, I, I know I'm probably guilty of murder. I'm probably guilty of a lot of horrible crimes against this church. But I met Jesus on a road on my way to Damascus to lock some of you up, and I gotta say I'm in. Right? <laughs> I gotta say I believe. I've been baptized. This guy baptized me. Now I want to be a part of your local assembly. And so now they're being tested. Will the gospel unite us? Or were things like what you did in your past and who you are and the fact that I'm bothered by you, will those, my lack of forgiveness, my bitterness towards you, the fact that my, my husband's in jail because Paul drug him there, will that, will that prevent it? And he goes on to be right most of the New Testament and to be a key leader in the early church. Why? Because the gospel unites us. The gospel unites us. But also we grow in the gospel. Spiritual growth happens in the gospel. We believe the gospel because it's what brings us in. We believe the gospel because it's what unites us. And we believe the gospel because it's what enables, the Spirit uses to enable our spiritual growth. In verse 42 it says they were devoted to four things. And you'll notice there the third one is the breaking of bread. And that likely meant this. In their day, they would get together for these big meals. They call them love feasts, right? And if you don't have food, just come on. We'll have enough for you, right? And they'd just get together. They would eat and they would fellowship and they'd spend time together. And at the end of that meal, they would take the Lord's Supper. A lot like the way Jesus instituted it. And they would take the Lord's Supper at the end of the meal. And so usually when you see that passage, it conveys both of those things. They ate a meal together and they took the Lord's Supper. And it says they were devoted to this. This communal coming together and yes, eating, but that taking the Lord's Supper. And it is in the Lord's Supper that the Bible teaches us we proclaim Jesus' death. We proclaim the Gospel until He comes again. You see, baptism is a way that we have to proclaim the Gospel. The Lord's Supper or communion is a way that we have to proclaim the Gospel. One says, hey, I'm saved. One says, hey, I'm being saved. 
One says, hey, I'm still applying the gospel to my life. I'm still relying on the death of Christ and that alone as being sufficient to pay for my sins. And we continue in the gospel. The Lord gave us that, the Lord's Supper, as a reminder to continue in the gospel as a constant reminder of our need for it. The gospel is never something we depart from, only something we, and I say this a lot, that we continue to grow in and apply to our lives. You look all through the New Testament and you see it that way. They say a command, but it's always a lot of the gospel. You know, Tim Keller has said that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. Now think about it this way. You learn the alphabet at what age, right? Cannon's gotten to where he can kind of say it. Sometimes he leaves some letters out here or there, but for the most part, right, he can kind of get through it. He's three, right? And it's A, B, you know, he sings it, and at the end, next time, won't you sing with me? And you learn that at three, at four, at whatever. There's an age that, that you learn to do that. And you've had those ABCs ever since then. But now, you write sentences. You can maybe, maybe you can still diagram a sentence. I don't know. And you use subjects and you use verbs and prepositions and all these things. And you, you can write a paragraph, hopefully, and probably construct an email. And you can talk and you can hopefully read and all those sort of things. But it started with an alphabet. And apart from that alphabet, you can't do any of the other stuff. All the stuff that earns you your degrees and may help you earn your living, you can't do any of it. Without the alphabet. You use the alphabet every day. And everything else you learn in the English language is built on the alphabet. And if you ever said, well, I don't need the alphabet anymore. You can't not need the alphabet anymore. It's in the DNA of how you use the language now. Just knowing how the letters even sound, right? I mean, this is very basic stuff. That's the way the gospel is in the Christian life. Everything else is built on it. You say, I want to move on from that and I want to learn about the, the return of Christ. Man, that's the gospel, right? The fact that He's coming again, it's all built on and connected to the gospel. Everything is connected. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. And so we continue to grow. Listen, we are a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, gospel-proclaiming local church. We believe something has been done. We believe there is good news that we get to declare and hold to. Have you believed the gospel? Are you trying or are you resting? Has the Spirit of God drawn you to Christ? Are you growing in the Gospel? Or are you trying to move on to your self-effort? Are you trying without believing and holding to the Gospel? Would you as a church pray that God would strengthen our understanding of the Gospel so that we'll know the love of Christ in a deeper and more or profound way than ever before? I believe when God does unique movements in local churches, generally it's probably begins in many times a rediscovery of not just the simplicity but the depth of the gospel. We're gospel believing. Number two, we're supposed to be Bible teaching. Verse 42 says of the things that they were devoted to, the first one it lists, it says they were devoted, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted means to persist in, to continue in, to persevere. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, it primarily would have been the teachings of Jesus and then helping them to see, as Jesus had showed them after He had been resurrected from the dead, the Bible teaches us, had showed them how the Old Testament points to Him and is fulfilled in Him. And so the apostles' teaching likely primarily would have been taking the Old Testament and saying, look, let me show you Jesus. He's all in this thing we found out. We've been missing it, right? Look, let me show you, let me show you, let me show you. And look, and Jesus told us this. Look, Jesus said this on the Sermon of the Mount, and that helps us understand this. And Jesus taught us this. And pointing them to Jesus and building their life on Jesus and applying the teachings of Jesus. And now we have that, and it's called the New Testament. 
And we have the whole Bible, the Old and New Testament, and they were devoted if they were persistent in, if they continued in, if they were held so dearly to the apostles' teaching, how much more should we with the completed Word of God? They were so sold out to the Word that was being taught that they hungered for it. They, they were devoted to it. I can't express strongly enough how strong that Word is in the language. When God's Spirit breathes life into dead souls, that living soul becomes thirsty and the water is the Word. It is the Word of God. Notice that the teaching was Christ's exalted teaching because they were the apostles' teaching was the teachings of Jesus and pointing them to Jesus. You know, the Bible isn't mainly a book of rules or a book of moral code or just a book about how to live your life. It's a story about Jesus from beginning to end. And beware of reading the Bible like it's about you. It leads to all kinds of error. And I would dare to say that maybe most people, maybe even most Christians, approach the Bible that way. This is a story about me. What does God have to say to me about this? This is all about me. It's all about Jesus. And it's not about trying to take Jesus from the Scriptures and take the Word and fit it into our story. It's about understanding that it's His story and we're going to take our life and graft it into His story and see how our story fits into His story. Right? He's the, he's the star. He's the star character of the story. So we approach the Bible that way. We preach the Bible that way. It's primarily about Jesus. And notice the devotion to the teaching of the Word that they have. It's more than just a list of things that you put on a website or that you sign and says, I believe these eight things. No, the teaching, the application, the understanding, the gross in. They devoted themselves to this. Listen, I can't devote you. You can't devote me. But together, we can devote ourselves. They devoted themselves. It's an individual decision to be devoted to the Word. So you should come in here and you should strive to get the most out of the Word when, we're together, or when you're opening your Bible, whenever that is, or when you come under the teaching of the Word. If we want to look anything like the early church, we need to be devoted to the teaching of the Scriptures. That means we we'll give you four ways to help you real quickly and to get the most out of the Word. First off, you've got to be present. You've got to be here. Right? you got to be here. I'll just be honest. There's something about being in the community of saints that you can't get from a podcast. You got to be here. We're all going to miss from time to time, but consistent patterns. You got to stay alert. You got to stay alert. And you got to fight that, man. Because I'm long. <laughs> this isn't 20 minutes and we're out of here. I mean, maybe, you know. You got to seek understanding. It's one thing to, to be here and to be alert and another thing to actually want to understand what's being said and to kind of fight to understand the text, right? And then you've got to practice applying it. Or you lose it, right? You've got to practice applying it. And all those things require a battle on our end that we've got to fight for. We've got to fight the temptations to, to be here, to be alert, to understand and apply the Scriptures. And if we do those things, we'll grow in increased devotion to God's Word. Thirdly, they were community-oriented. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the fellowship. That's the other word there that they were devoted to. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. It's a Greek word, koinonia. It means fellowship or participation. It carries the idea of sharing in something together. When we Baptists, if you're not a Baptist, here's how Baptists think of it. Baptists think of this word as fried chicken and baked beans and sweet tea and round tables and, right, that's the fellowship. And 
that's great. And we should practice that. That's like a small part of fellowship. If I was listing ten things about fellowship, it would be like a third point somewhere underneath one of the main points, right? Let's eat together. But it's part of it. We see, hey, it's all through this text they were eating together. But that's not really, that doesn't drive at the heart of the Word. This is life together. This is a deep commitment to one another. They just weren't committed to the Bible. They just weren't committed to Jesus. They were committed to the person sitting beside them, the person sitting in front of them, the person sitting behind them. They were committed to one another. They did not have a privatized faith. Their relationship with God wasn't just about me and Jesus. It was me and Jesus and us. It was communal. Jesus said what? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus never told us how to market the local church. However, He did tell us that He would make us stand out, how He would make us stand out as His local church. He said we'd be a city on a hill that would be the light of the world. And He said people will know you by your love for one another. Their marketing scheme was very simple in the early church. Radical, unique love for one another and created an irresistible community that people were drawn to. The light of the world. Who we are should be obvious. Our community should be so different that it should be attractive and alluring to the outside world because we're made for community. You're created for it. It's in our DNA to live in community. You're not made to do life alone. So people should see the way we do community and the way we function in our relationships and with one another and they should realize I'm missing that and they should be drawn to that. They might hate us for certain things. They may not believe what we believe, but they should be drawn to the community. You know, back in the 80s, Television was just full of like these family shows. I listed a few of them. Uh, aside from current day headlines, The Cosby Show, Family Ties is a favorite of mine. Interesting family dynamic there with the conservatives and the liberals and all that. Full House, remember Full House, late 80s, early 90s. Growing Pains, The Seavers, right? Those were some of my favorites. And those shows would come on and man, moms and dads and little kids would all watch the same show together. And everybody would laugh. They'd have to go in separate rooms and watch. The, everybody wanted to watch the same show. And at the end of the show, the mu- it, no matter what crazy stuff happened, the music would play and you knew everything was going to be alright and somebody would sit down and have a very wise conversation and everybody would learn something. Right? And that's just every show was that way. And then everybody sits down on the corner of the bed and let me tell you why you're an idiot. But you, you know, you're going to be alright. You know? Everything turned out alright. Nobody was getting divorced. Unless the story was about a family that had already been through that and was living in light of it. Nobody, nobody was, if they went to jail, they weren't staying. Right? If, if anybody died on those shows, they dealt with it in the best possible way and everybody handled it well or did by the end. Right? It was clean. It was, it was neat. It was tidy and it showed people, people were drawn to those shows because at times there were things that you looked at, it reminded you of things in your family or things you wished about your family. Maybe it was the relationship between the parents and the children or the brothers and the sisters or whatever that you kind of go, I wish my family was more like that or whatever. And you know, the church is not perfect. And our stories sometimes are messy and a lot of times there's a lot of pain. But we should be showing people the world, the, the world around us, the, the relationships in this world work better when done according to God's design. That life works better done according to God's design.
They should be amazed by how we resolve conflict in the local church. They should be amazed by how we treat people we disagree with. They should be amazed at how we care for people that are hurting. They should be amazed because we should be showing them the way to what community looks like. Look at the characteristics of this community that made them stand out. The first thing was their unity. It says all who believed were together. And that Greek word is a word that, that signifies their unity together and it expresses itself and they had all things in common. They were sharing their stuff. I mean, they were unified. Unity is not everyone being alike, but it is everyone having one purpose and one mission. They had a single mind and a single purpose. They refused to have 3,000 agendas. They could have had 3,000 agendas. You know, and I'm always amazed when people say, I don't like big churches. Boy, you would have not liked the first church. It was huge. It was huge. It was a mega church. It was. And they could have had 3,000 agendas, 3,000 of lists of things we should be doing, but they didn't. They had one. Jesus had given it to them. Made disciples, right? And so they rallied around that. Churches and people that fail to make the mission the big deal will start making other things a big deal. If disciple making, if growth in Christ's likeness, if seeking and saving those that are lost are not the big deals in the local church, we are sure to make idols of trivial things. We are sure to exalt trivial things. We are sure to fight and argue over things that really don't matter. That we're not even going to remember maybe in heaven. Right? Because we have gotten disconnected from what matters most. Unity has to be maintained. It has to be fought for. Not with each other. For. It cannot be assumed. And it starts with me. It starts with you. It starts with us as individuals and corporately Living on mission and having that overshadow, having Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission overshadow everything else. And saying, you know what, at the end of the day, if it's helping that and it's not thwarting that, I don't need to stress to a large degree. It was a community of generosity. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You know, some people want to act like this is the only verse in the Bible. And you get poverty Christianity. Other people want to act like this verse isn't in the Bible. And you get materialism. It's in there. Right? I could read past it real fast and not address it, but it's there. Right? And you're like, well, it's, it's weird. Let's not talk about that too far. We might have guests here. Listen, let's let the Bible be weird. Bible's weird sometimes. This is one of those things we look at and we go, it's kind of weird. You know? Everybody sold all their stuff. I don't want to sell all my stuff. Then everybody's poor. Then how can you help them? You know, we get all these problems. We come up. This wasn't communism. This wasn't socialism. There was no governmental authority saying you must do this. The apostles weren't saying you must do this. In fact, one guy went and, and did something like this, like we talked about earlier, and was being deceptive in it and wasn't doing what he said he did. And the, you know, Peter looks at him and goes, man, why did you do this? It was your land. Right? It was not forced. This was free will giving. They saw needs and they were just trying to meet it. And the point of the passage, remember, prescriptive. And descriptive. This is a description. The point is not leave here today and go sell everything. The point is the Holy Spirit wants to make us a lavishly generous people. And sometimes that will look weird to the culture around you. He wants to make us lavishly generous. You say, I am generous. He wants to make you even more generous. And we do have very generous people here. I don't know if you're generous. You don't know if I'm generous. As a body, I believe we're Pretty generous. But we can grow in that. You can grow in that. I can grow in that. How do I know? Because we're not Jesus. So we've got ways that we can grow in that.
And sometimes it'll look different ways and be expressed in different ways. But don't get caught up on what they did. Get caught up in the heart behind what they did. And the point is this. Just be generous. Grow in generosity. Pursue love for your... The reason generosity flowed from this group is because there was the love breeds the generosity. When you love God, you'll give towards God. When you love others, you'll give towards others. Love breeds generosity. It's not hard to be generous to your kids. It's not hard to be generous to your spouse. It is hard to be generous when you're disconnected. Right? And there's not the love there. There's not the connection there. They were so connected to one another and so connected to God that they gave freely. The point is give generously and don't put God in a box and assume what He may or may not lead you to do. They were not only generous, they were hospitable. Community of hospitality. It says they were hosting people in their homes. They were breaking bread in their homes. They didn't sell everything. Some of them had homes. <laughs> right? They were meeting in their homes. They... That required hospitality. That word in the Greek, hospitality, means love of strangers. Sometimes a stranger was going to show up in your home. One of the ways we can express a love for people is to use our homes to connect with and serve others. Our homes can host meals. Whether it's for two other people or ten other people, our homes can host Bible studies and play dates with little children. and Our homes can do all sorts of things other than house us. They can be ministry grounds. They were a hospitable church. They were a joyful church. A joyful church. It says they were receiving their food with glad hearts. Glad and generous hearts. You see that they were praising God and having favor with people. This was a, a, a spirit of joy just runs out of this text. We wouldn't admire this church. I'm, I just take, we would not admire this church if we thought they begrudged all that was going on here. If it all felt like a, a duty, if it all felt forced, well, I had to go sell my stuff. And well, I had to go do this. And I had to go to temple every day. And I had to do this every day. And if that's the way the text felt, if the text felt like they were making themselves do these things, if the text felt manipulative and forced, we would look at it and pity these people. But because joy runs out of this text, especially by the end, we admire these people. And how many times does the world look at a joyless Christian and a joyless church and pity us? It's the difference. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. God the Holy Spirit doesn't just want to make us obedient. He doesn't just want to make us generous. He wants to make us joyful. So we can loosen up a little bit. Laugh a little bit. Tell a joke every now and then. Smile. Laugh at a joke every now and then. It's going to be okay, right? Listen, I'm not in hell today. That's a good day. You're not in hell today. That's a good day. Day. It's going to be okay. And life is hard. Life is difficult. I'm not saying you're not going to have moments and times and seasons of sorrow. I'm telling you, the gospel's good enough that it teaches me we can have joy in the midst of sorrow. It's not one canceling out the other. Sometimes they're mingled together. That's how Jesus could say, I give you joy that the world can't take away from you. Joy is a joyful church. And if you're joyful, you can enjoy things. And we should enjoy church. We should. We should enjoy being together and we should enjoy worship. Number four, it was a God-centered church. It was a God-centered church. Their lives and their community had God, not people, not man, not self, and not programs at the center. Here's some signs that they were a God-centered church. Notice the prayer and the praise. It says they were devoted to prayer in verse 42. Devoted to the prayers. It was a core tenet. This word devoted, remember, serious commitment to something. This is a serious commitment to prayer. You know, you can't pray too much. You can't overemphasize prayer. 
God-centered people pray because there's an understanding that without God we're hopeless. We're hopeless. The lack of prayer shows a lack of being God-centered, having God at the center in the core of our life. Pastor J.D. Greer wrote recently in a blog I read a couple of weeks ago, I want to read to you a quote. He says, quote, Prayerlessness is a sign that either we believe we no longer really need God's help, or that we are unaware of how willing He is to give it. Both those things are dangerous, right? He goes on to say, Jonathan Edwards, one of the leaders in the Great Awakening, said, quote, Prayer doesn't bring the revival. Prayer is the revival. It is. Prayerlessness shows we aren't depending on and relying on God to the degree that we should be. People often joke about how under-attended prayer meetings are, right? We make little jokes about that in church, but something tells me that was not the case in Acts. Prayer's not a joke. <laughs> what is God not doing in your life because you're not asking Him to do it? You ever wonder about that? You ever heard the story, the old joke about the guy that gets to heaven and sees this room full of this whole life that he could have had that he just didn't ask for? You know, Jesus says you have not because you ask not. And sometimes that's a hard thing to work through and all that kind of stuff. But this is what I know. You have not because you ask not. And I believe that there are times, there are things that God withholds until we ask. I do. And He wants us to ask persistently and faithfully and, and full of faith. What are, you not, what are things in your life that God's not doing simply because you're not asking? In persistent, fervent, faith-filled prayer. What are things that He's not doing in and through our church simply because we're not really asking? Prayer shows a God-centeredness. Verse 47 says that they were praising God. I mean, it, it, It's not just talking about when they showed up at church. This is just the, the abundance of their life was praise. Not merely a Sunday ritual, a lifestyle. God-centered people in churches are characterized by praise, by worship. Praise is the overflow of a life centered on God. It's not a church buffet where you come and decide, I'll take some praise today. No, I don't want the praise. I don't want the worship. I'll take the teaching. Or I'll take the this. Or I'll take this. No, no, no. It's, man, we, we, we need it. We gotta have it. And when we're, our lives are God-centered, it, this flows out. You know another thing that stands out? Awe and miracles. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. That's the Greek word phobos, for fear. It's a reverential fear and respect. In this case, talking about, a lot of times it was used in terms of a deity. In this case, it would be God. The idea is that everyone knew God was at work. They knew it. Even It says it came upon everybody. Scholars will tell you, commentary people will tell you, that it's, it's, it's not just the church, it was those around the church. Even people that weren't believers, there was this holy fear that came upon it. God seemed real to them. That's the best way I know to explain that word. You want to know what that kind of awe is? It's like God seems real. Very real today. Reach out and touch Him sort of real. Is there an awe in your prayers? Is God, God's listening. Do you understand that? Like that, that should help create some moments of awe in our lives when we're, when we stand and sing and we realize we're singing to God when God's word is being preached. We realize God speaks through His word when, when we go to the Lord in prayer and we realize we're talking to God. It's when God seems real to us and there was a sense of His presence and His activity in this church. I long for us to know and understand that God is active and present in our lives and in our community. Church is not about a performance. It's not about our performance or my performance or a band's performance. It's about God's presence. It's about God's presence. 
They knew God was at work because they could see the evidence. Verse 43 says many wonders and signs were being done. At this time, there was an influx of the miraculous. The Spirit had come in great power. They were seeing miracles showing the Holy Spirit's power. And God certainly still does miraculous things of all sorts that we pray for. And many times God answers those prayers. Many times He does still heal people and do things that we can't explain. The greatest miracle, though, is conversion. It's when a person that would never choose Jesus apart from the Spirit of God working in their heart and life chooses Jesus. It's God and only God who saves self-righteous sinners, who sets addicts free, who heals marriages, who mends broken hearts. Those are miraculous things. And we want to be a place, we want to be a people, every church should be, that we see God things happen. Things that only God can do. Things that we can't explain on our own. Things that we can't figure out. It's my prayer that... that God would do something so great in our midst and through this church and in this community that we can't explain it with programming or with finances or with a campus or with anything. We can only say, God did that. I don't want the credit for it. We don't want the credit for it. You don't want the credit for it. That's not, we want God to get the credit for it. So we want Him to do it in such a way that everybody just, man, God just, just did something there. The miraculous. Lives being changed. That doesn't mean we don't Use wisdom and leverage our ministries and leverage our finances and our property and our programming and our talents and all those things for God's glory. God doesn't work in spite of our stewardship. God does work through our stewardship. So those things are important too. But we got to understand we need God to work. Another thing that characterized them was their faithfulness. Verse 46 says, Day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread. Man, they were just consistently worshiping together. It was just natural. It was weird that whoever wasn't there that day. Man, it was just it was just a, a spirit of faithfulness. Those that could be there, those that were able to be there, were there. Their time was consistently spent with God's people, worshiping God. Because God was at the center. He was the priority. You know, you make time for what's important. You all made time to be here today. It's amazing how people who don't have time for church eat every day. Have you ever noticed that? I never I just don't have I never have time to go to church. How many meals have you missed? You seem to be doing okay. Right? Why don't you make time to eat three times a day? Right? Wow. I don't have time for church, but man, I'm caught up on all my shows. DVR's clean. Spent 12 hours this weekend watching TV. Didn't have time for church. You had time for church. It wasn't a priority. Entertainment was. Junior hadn't missed a ball game in months. But man, we don't have time for church. Right? No, it's priorities. It's priorities. And the list could go and listen. We live in a city full of family-oriented temptation. We live in the most tempting city in America to pull a young family out of church. You realize that? You said, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Disney World. I'm talking about Sea World. I'm talking about the beach. I'm talking about Universal. I'm talking about parks. And This is the greatest place in a lot of ways to raise a young family in our country. And in the same way, it's one of the most tempting places to pull them away from the things that God says is priority. Be careful. Be very careful. It is a dangerous temptation that must be... God-centered people are characterized by faithfulness to God's people. One last thing. They were mission-minded. 
This is drawn just from observing the text. But let me give you three observations of it. First of all, they were attending the temple together. You say, well, that was because they were faithful to worship. Yeah, but the temple is where all the Jews were going to worship. And these were converted Jews. These were Messianic Jews. These are Jews that believed in Jesus. And so going to the temple wasn't just about worship. It was about evangelism. So they went to the temple to testify about Christ. That's why they were going all the time. They kept going until they ran them out of there. Right? And so, because they wanted them to say, yeah, you're, you're longing for the Messiah. Let me show you Isaiah. Let me show you that Jesus is that Messiah, right? And so, they were living on mission. He says they were having favor with all the people. They couldn't have favor with people if they weren't engaged in the mission. People were looking at how these people lived their lives, the kind of community that they had, how they treated people, and people were drawn to them. They had unusual favor. To the point that Luke needed to note it. An unusual favor with people around him. With people that didn't know Christ. For a mission-minded people will seek and desire favor with those that are far from God. I'm not talking about being people pleasers. I'm talking about being people who, as Paul said, are willing to be all things to all people. I'm talking about living, as the Bible says, a life that makes the gospel attractive. I'm talking about showing that our hope is not in this world. That means the way we handle money should reflect well on Christ. That means the way we handle um, our work should reflect well on Christ. The way we raise our families should reflect well on Christ and show our hopes not in the sort. The way we react to the political scene should reflect well on Christ. Listen, if you're just as panicked about whatever happens in politics and in the government as the lost person sitting beside you, your hope looks just like their hope. I don't know who's going to be president. I don't know who what's going to happen with this thing and, and these laws that are going. I don't know what's going to happen. Do I have concern? I'm concerned. But Jesus is still on the throne. And it, and it was worse then. It was worse then. And the church always flourishes. Always flourishes. No matter the environment. No matter the environment. They had favor with all the people. They sought and hungered for favor with all the people showing their hope was not in this world. You know, we want this to be the kind of place that even people that are far from God don't love God, don't know God, and they're just attracted to the community of it. You know, and, and they go, you know, something goes wrong in my life, that's where I'm going to go. Example, last week, my little daughter, one-year-old, bust her lip, right? And it's all, you know, messed up. She's bleeding everywhere. Like, oh, no, she's going to need stitches, so we're going to take her to the uh, emergency room. I hate the emergency room. I hate it. Do you like the... I've never met anybody who goes, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to go to the emergency room. Get a cup of coffee. Might meet a girl. You know, single people don't hang out there, right? People don't go on date night at the emergency room. It's a horrible place. If you work there, I'm sorry. But you know what? I thank God for the emergency room. Because you know what? My little one-year-old daughter's lips bleeding and I don't know what to do about it. We're going to take her to the emergency room, Right? If I'm sick enough and I can't wait to the doctor the next day and I don't know what's happening, something's broken, something that's working right away, I'm going to the emergency room and I'm going to deal with the influenza and I'm going to deal with the people that look like they're on death's doorstep and I'm going to deal with the zombies that are everywhere and I'm going to deal with the four-hour wait and I'm going to put up with all of it because I need the emergency room and I'll deal with all the rest of it, right? Because I need it. And we want to be a church that the outside world might look at us and go, I hate those people. And I don't believe what they believe. And I don't believe Jesus is who they say He is. And I don't believe their views on sexuality. And I don't believe their views on marriage. And I don't believe their views on gender. And I don't believe this. And I don't believe that. And I don't believe all these things. But doggone it, if everything goes wrong in my life, I hope somebody in that church is near me. And I hope that's my neighbor. I hope that's my coworker. Because, man, they love people. They love people. They don't condemn people. They, man, they, they love people. 
They serve people. And I don't, I don't like anything they believe. And I like them. That's what you want to be. That was the New Testament church in Acts. And it says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God gives the increase. This verse is one of many that makes it clear that salvation is of the Lord. That me and you have zero power to save anybody. We're just simply responsible for the sharing. The Lord added to their number daily, but I know they were mission-minded because the Lord doesn't save people unless people tell people. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe on Him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul makes the argument, man, you don't hear, you don't believe. You, the Lord doesn't add to the number unless people believe. And people don't believe unless somebody tells them. The point is, it was a healthy church and healthy things grow. But they didn't grow because God dropped people down from heaven. God sent His Spirit to empower people on earth to share Jesus with them. We aren't responsible for the saving, but be assured we are responsible for the sharing. We are stewards of the Gospel. You can't separate the Spirit of God and the mission of God. The very reason for which He's come. He will lead us out of our comfort zones. He will lead you into hard conversations. He will lead us into difficult places. And let's be a church that cares more about the mission than the methods and all the stuff that surrounds it. If we idolize the methods, we're bound to abandon the mission at some point. The early church would be tested in this. They said they were tested earlier. They're going to be tested in favor with outsiders. The gospel is soon to explode into, of all people, the lives of Gentiles. And you can thank God for that if you're not a Jew today. Because that means it got to you. They were to be given great favor with Gentiles. They would start coming to know the Lord. And they, they had a big business meeting in Acts 15 to talk about it. What in the world are we going to do? The Gentiles are getting saved. They're getting the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. They're being baptized. Crazy stuff's happening. What are we going to do? This, is this a Jewish faith? Is it a faith? What are we, oh, well, God said we're supposed to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. I guess they're supposed to be getting saved too. Okay? Well, what are we going to do? They don't, they don't keep our rules. And they had a lot of rules. God had given them a law. Right? And it had hundreds of rules. Good rules. But God was about to teach them a lesson that a lot of that was passing away. The ceremonial law was passing away. But that was going to be hard for some of them because, man, this is the way I grew up. Right? You just don't eat, you don't eat shellfish. You just don't do it. You don't eat, you don't wear garments made out of that. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't do this on the Sabbath. All these sort of rules, right? And they, they grew up that way. That was the way life was. And so they meet in Acts 15. We say, so do we tell them they got to keep all the rules? And somebody's wise enough to stand up and go, man, if you, why would you take and put that over their neck? We can't even keep all the rules. Why ask them to keep all the rules? Well, so what are we going to tell them to do? And they boiled everything down to four things. <laughs> Just like that. From, hun from hundreds to like four things. What was it? Things sacrificed to idols, blood, and things that were strangled. That was the first three. All things that had to do with eating. And what was the purpose? You ever wonder? You ever read Acts 15 and wonder why they picked these four things? It was because there were Jews who were believers who were among them who were grossly offended by those things and some who were not believers that if the Gentiles were indulging in those things in the church that they would come in and they would be so repulsed they wouldn't want to hear the gospel. So they said for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of the gospel, let's just not fool with that. 
And sexual immorality. Why did they pick that one? Because it was probably the sin they struggled with the most because it was so prevalent among the Gentiles at that time. So they go, they need to understand if the things that are going to alienate them from their brothers and sisters in Christ who think those, who, who, who are coming out of a law where those things were wrong. And the sexual immorality. They need to know that's a sin. We know it's a sin, but they don't seem to know that's a sin. I've heard, you know, that's bad over there. And those two, just tell them that and we're good. What about all the... You know, somebody was sitting there thinking, my thing didn't make the list. Right? I've got a list of five things that are near and dear to my heart and I've got verses. Right? And they're going, it didn't make the list, brother. I'm sorry. This is the new covenant. In Acts 15.19, James stands up and says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What is he saying? Don't put junk in their way. Don't make them carry your baggage. If that's your baggage, that's fine. You carry it all the way to death. But don't you take that baggage and place it in their hand. And we've got our own list. It's different. But we've got our own church culture list and our own things, right? From the way we dress to music to tattoos and you name it. We can go on and on and on and on with the list of things. Do not make it difficult. Mission-minded people, do not make it difficult for people to come to God. God says, come. And He offers them the Gospel. He says, believe. And He gives them His Word to live by. We don't need to add anything to that. We don't need to add anything to that. He said, we would never do that. Oh, we do it. We're all, we're all tempted to do that. They were tempted. We're no better than they are. We're tempted to do that. I'm tempted to do that. Beware when we love and find non-negotiable things that are not on God's list. Who are you desiring to see brought into the kingdom today? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a co-worker. Pray and live and share like you're the person God's placed in their life to see them come to know Christ. God uses all three of those things. Your life and your love, your prayers. But nobody gets saved without the sharing. So patiently and lovingly share. The early church grew because God added to their number and He tends to do that to healthy things. How many people in Orlando how many people in Baldwin Park or in your workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood might God want to use you? Might God want to use us to reach? What might be? Who might He want to save? How many children? How many students? How many dads? How many moms? How many grandparents are out there that God's waiting to give us favor with? And sometimes we forfeit that favor. Maybe today you've never truly believed the Gospel and been saved. And that's what you need to do today. Maybe today you've never been baptized and you need to fill out on the back of that card, I've never been baptized, I want to talk about it and I'll get in touch with you if you'll do that and drop it in the offering plate. Maybe today you need to ask, how might the Holy Spirit desire to use me at the church He's placed me? Where do I fit? But whatever you do, use this as a prayer guide for our church. Pray that God would help us to increasingly be a gospel-believing, Bible-teaching, community-oriented, God-centered, mission-minded people. Because I believe as God does those things and as we see those things revitalized in our church, the Lord will add to our number those who are being saved. Let's pray. If you're here today and I can pray for you, if you just say, you know what, I've just got a special need or something on my heart. I don't know what it is. I don't need to know what it is. But if I can pray for you, just say, Josh, pray for me. I've got a need or I just need the Lord to... I need the Lord's touch. I need His hand. I need His power. I need His wisdom in an area. I just, 
I just got something that I can't really share right now, but I just need prayer. I need prayer. Would, would you pray for me? Would you just raise your hand and acknowledge that before God? Okay, I see that. I see that. Anybody else? 